You're listening to an episode of The Crew Mess, coming specially. Um, joined uh, the virtually at the studio by Tim Clark from Key Crew. And uh, also got Danny McGovern uh, from Nautilus. And Avnish Dal, who is the CEO of PTW Shipyards, but is also a captain. And not just a captain, but he's also, I believe, done fleet captain as well, if I'm not mistaken. Good afternoon, gentlemen. Thanks for joining us. Hello. Afternoon. Good afternoon, Dave. So uh, we're here to talk about two main points. Uh, these were two issues that uh, Avnish contacted us about and asked if we could um, have a talk about it. I think they were valuable subjects um, and worth having a roundtable discussion with you guys. So uh, the two topics that we want to cover today, uh, one is crew visas. And the second is what happens as a crew member if uh, if the boat's not paying you or if the boat uh, is not paying everybody. So uh, the first one I'd like to get to is the uh, crew visa situation, which is not a new thing. It's been going on for years. I know over the last couple of years there's been a lot of changes. Crew wanting to get B1s, B2s, C1s, uh, D... What's the situation? If I if I could ask um, you first, Avnish, as uh, you're the one who raised the points, um, tell me from your perspective about visas. Well, it's uh, obviously getting a lot more complicated now. Uh, mainly, of course, I deal with the Asian crew more than, uh, let's say, the Europeans who want to go up to the US. But I think uh, the way it's going is it's now getting complicated for everybody. And uh, what we find is, particularly, let's say, out of Asia, uh, while, let's say, in the Philippines, this has been being dealt with for quite a while, uh, the rest of the countries are finding it really difficult. And there are lots more regulations being brought into force by the government themselves, which requires uh, yacht crew when they're joining to fulfill some documentation, which is a problem for them to do. So is this Asian crew coming into, say, the Mediterranean looking for visas here, or are we talking about America? Because usually people associate it always as an American issue. It's, it's everywhere. I mean, uh, let's say for, for, let's say, Asian crew that are coming into, uh, uh, coming into the Med, or actually anywhere, uh, crew are supposed to join uh, vessels or yachts or any boats uh, using their Siemens book and on a one-way ticket. Now, uh, to do that, they need to have some documentation from the yacht itself, which first allows them to leave India immigration. Because without a return ticket and a visa into the country, the, the immigration at the place of departure itself first stops you. The second thing is once you join, actually, uh, the bigger boats are more aware of it, but the boats which are up to, let's say, 50, 60 meters in length, are not really aware of all the requirements there because they don't have agents, etc. And what happens is that the, the, the crew member on leaving needs to be actually allowed into the country one, but allowed into the country, then go onto the boat, be signed on to the boat. So there's the airport immigration involved there, and then the sea immigration that's invo involved at the same time, or the port. Once he goes on the boat, then he's obviously on the, on the crew list of the boat. But he's only allowed to work on the boat if he's, if he's a seaman. That's the first, first part of it. Okay. But if he wants to leave the boat anywhere, uh, then 
or to go out, he needs to have a visa to go out. So this this double kind of whammy has to be kind of taken care of for most of the for most of the crew. And uh, he, sorry. I was going to say, so, so even if that crew member just wanted a, a day pass or a, for the weekend, he got a weekend off, uh, they need a visa to go on land. Well, the rule is that if you, you get, because this is all built for actually uh, for ships and not really for yachts, uh, the, when a ship goes into port, the crew members get a shore pass which allows them to stay in the vicinity of the of the ship. Now, if he wants to go for a weekend, he can't do that. Or he wants to go for a weekend away from that, he actually can't do that unless he has a visa. Because he's not allowed to physically leave the vicinity of the, of the vessel that he's on. That's the rule. Now, when you're on a yacht, actually, one doesn't look at it so much because no one actually stops you on the road and says, do you have a visa unless you get into trouble. Yeah. And Tim, how do you find this with crew? Because uh, obviously you, you're managing crew all around the world. What's, um, what problems do you see them having? Um, I think over the last couple of years, there's been a lot more issues with the B1, B2 visa, um, which you sort of alluded to earlier, um, for various reasons, uh, political obviously being one of the, the likely ones. There seems to be inconsist- inconsistent application of the rules across various embassies across the world. Um, so some embassies are being incredibly strict on whether they're they're supplying B1, B2s, and others are being fairly flexible, um, and, and all the crew are getting them. So that's one issue crew have had. Um, and then South African crew obviously have the, the Schengen visa issue as well, um, which can curtail their job opportunities and things like that. And it's an additional administrative stroke logistical headache for the yacht in question and is is there anybody you know tackling this i mean in america you see lobbyists and i know kitty um kitty mcgowan your namesake danny um (laughs) with uh, us uh, usaa um they do a lot of lobbying of parliament of the government to change laws and, and to swing things around. To your knowledge, is, is anybody doing anything about the visa process to make it a bit more... Because as you say, Tim, and I, I've read this in, in many articles, you go into one embassy and they'll happily give you the visa, there's no issues, it's not a big deal. You go into others and uh, you can all but forget, forget the process. Is there any action being taken about this? Not, not that I'm aware of, no. Um, unfortunately, I don't think it features very high on the priority list of, of anyone. <laughs> um, so it's just one of those things that, you know, slips by. Um, yacht crew do seem to be unfairly discriminated against on it. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't be best placed to comment on on how or, yeah, on how to go about changing that. But what would your take be? What would your take, Danny? It's, it's an interesting topic um, for, for all of the seafarers involved. And as, as Avnish um, said... It Sorry, Danny, some... could, could you move a bit closer to your microphone? Because we're not, we're not picking you up very well here. Uh, it's an interesting topic for um, all of the seafarers involved. But as Avnish has said, it's rather um, a large issue for people that are um, sort of from, from further afield than, than in Europe, where uh, most of us are based. Um in terms of seafarers and, and Nautilus members contacting us, it's not something that, that cro- comes uh, across sort of our, our um, 
to influence very much. I think most of the the, the people that contact us um, will have the the visas sorted out for them uh, by the yacht or by by the recruitment and placement agency. Um, but as as Avnish has said, many of the yachts that that we all deal with don't call into the kind of ports where there are sort of large uh, immigration setups and um, for people to 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 have their visas checked. Um, however, we would always say that a seafarer should ensure they have the correct documentation before they disembark their vessel because we don't want them to get into into trouble um, for, for what should be a fairly easy um, documentary situation to resolve. Hmm. Um, as a captain or an ex-captain, uh, Avnish, how does this play with, with trying to run a boat? Because yeah, if you're going into ports and... You know, one minute you could be in the med and the owner wants you to go somewhere that you're going to need a visa form. Um, are you faced with a situation where you have to let crew go because they can't get a visa? Well, not not really, actually, unless the boat is going across to the U.S., uh, where uh, if you have the correct documentation and the boat organizes it properly, they can actually apply to the, en masse uh, to, the, to the embassy and then with the right documentation, you actually get it if if uh, the boat actually does it and helps you out. Uh, I'm hearing now, and maybe Tim can confirm this, that uh, a lot of uh, a lot of the embassies are now saying you have to go back to your home country to apply for the visa. I, I, I'm hearing this a lot at the moment, both for Schengen's as well as for uh, the U.S. visas. I, I, uh, does that, has anyone else heard that? With the, the Schengen visas, I think that's always been the case um, for, for the South African crew, at least, that it's the, the, the way forward or the suggested way forward is to go back home to get your new visa. Um, there are some agencies based in Europe which apparently can assist with this and mean not travelling home. But, um, yeah, I, I don't know a huge amount about those agencies and, and how they operate, but they do exist. Um, regarding the B1, B2, uh, whilst I haven't heard of people being told to go back home to their home country and the embassy in their home country to get the B1, B2, there's certainly been a lot more crew getting rejected for their B1, B2 than there has been historically. Um, and there's also been a few other tweaks as well. So generally, you would get your B1, B2, and that would be it. You know, you'd have the date that it expires on it. Increasingly, we're seeing um, that the, the embassies are now putting an annotation on it and naming the specific boat. So once you leave that boat, in effect, the B1, B2 is void. Um, so that's something which didn't used to happen, but is happening more and more of now. Jim, can I ask one more question? You know, uh, like like the same thing that happens for, let's say, Indian crew. And I suppose it's the same for South African crew. They apply for the Schengen visa, but the Schengen visa only gives them the ability to travel in the country. It doesn't give them the ability to work. So no. that means that you have to have the documentation for as a seaman, uh, which Danny is more familiar with than us, really. Uh, where you have to have a Siemens book, you have to travel with, uh, you know, all the, your contract, etc., and be signed on to the boat to be legal, right? Um, so with the Schengen, as I understand it, and, you know, I could well be incorrect here, but with the Schengen, as you say, it allows you to travel. Obviously, a crew member needs to find a job or a green crew member needs to find a job 
on a yacht before their Schengen expires. If their Schengen expires before they find a job, then that's it. They have to go home. Um, if they get a job, then the boat leaves and then they're under their seaman's book. Okay, so I could travel to Florida under a Schengen visa, do some dock walking, secure a job, and then retrospectively, I get no, well, not retrospectively, but then apply for my B1, B2 from within America. Not, not in America, no. So there, there's, um, I believe, with, in America, you, you know, it's not a Schengen, it's the B1, B2. Yeah. The Schengen's irrelevant, I think. Um, correct me if I'm wrong. Um, it's illegal to dock walk at all in America. Um, which is something which is being clamped down a lot more on again recently. Um, the general thought process is being this is something they're tightening up on to try and help Americans find jobs as opposed to, um, yeah, uh, immigrants. Mm -hmm. um, uh, yeah, you couldn't dock walk in America. You need your B1, B2. Um, so, yeah, that's, yeah, not a hypothetically not correct uh, situation. <laughs> Sorry, I'm not sure how to phrase that, Dave. <laughs> no, I think you put it very well. It shows how much I know about that side. Um, <laughs> the um, what about the C1D? I mean, is that's one I, I don't know much about, but I believe um, that's meant to be for seafarers in particular. But it's a short-term visa. Do you know about the C1D? It's not mentioned often. So the C1D seems to be a, a, uh, a visa which applies to commercial shipping or the cruise ship industry a lot more than yachting. Okay. Um, it, again, historically, uh, we would have yachts when we would ask the question, would you consider someone with a C1D? Say no. But over the last year or so, there's probably been a few yachts say, actually, we could consider that visa. Um, yeah, in terms of the, the the technical information on that visa, that's again not my strong point <laughs> yeah, <laughs> to discuss. I, I think the C one um, bit. That's the gist of it. I think the C one bit is the work side of it, and the D is for transit or taking the weekend. Or um, I think, as Avnish said earlier on, you could go within a vicinity of the boat on that or something. So it, it just seems to be one of these problems that existed and will keep on existing and. We just got to be at the mercy of what politics at the time, which seems yeah, to be the I case think, now. Yeah, I think the real issue is is the inconsistency of how it's applied. Hmm. If there was one set of rules and everyone followed them, then obviously it would be, there'd be a lot more clarity and everyone would be happier. At the moment, it seems to be a lottery. You're rolling a dice and depending on who you get on the day, you may or you may not get the B1, B2 visa, um, which obviously is impacting on people's careers and lives. Um, that's the issue, the inconsistency, in my opinion. You know, if, if people, you're not going to get a visa because we're not issuing them anymore for yacht workers, that's fine. Boats could make plans accordingly. Individuals could make plans. But until something like that happens, then it's, um, you know, it's grey areas and people are in limbo. Hmm. Pretty unfair, but... As you say, that's the way it is. Um, crew salaries. This has been an issue, unfortunately, uh, we've seen increasingly in uh, in the media. And, and another point that, that Avnish wanted to raise. Uh, when crew don't get paid, what do they do? I'm going to throw this to you, Danny. Because <laughs> uh, I've seen like the, those situations with uh, super yachts, but also in commercial shipping, I've seen a situation that's been going on until recently where the crew were afraid to leave the boat because if they did uh, there was some legality that they wouldn't be entitled to back pay or something what's the what's the story danny 
Yeah, that's that's absolutely right. And um, Nautilus is a, a trade union um, and professional organisation uh, that that is operates globally. Uh, we're an affiliate to the International Transport Workers Federation, uh, which is a group of uh, around 700 trade unions and 150 or so maritime unions um, that provide inspectors uh, around the world to, to board commercial vessels um, and to check on these kind of um, situations. Um, and in many cases, we can find uh, that seafarers have been abandoned for, for months at a time. Um, and they absolutely will not leave the, the vessel um, because it provides them that last little bit of security uh, on which to, to rest um, a, a wages claim. Um, now, clearly that kind of situation doesn't happen so often in, in yachting, um, but it still can happen where a seafarer doesn't uh, receive their wages um, either at the, the end of a month or, or over a longer period. Um, and uh, those seafarers are, are members of Nautilus um, so that we can resolve the issue for them uh, immediately. Um, and in all, all cases, we try to resolve those kind of issues um, without res resorting to legal processes because it becomes costly for a start, but also becomes um, hard work uh, for the seafarers involved as well. Um, so as I say, we try and resolve those kind of issues uh, directly with, with ship owners, uh, with recruitment and placement agents, with, with uh, yacht management companies, um, and, and nine times out of ten we, we managed to resolve them um, fairly, fairly, fairly swiftly. Does it matter Dave, where I am? I, oh, sorry. sorry, Dave, can I give an interesting anecdote where, yep. uh, you know, just the knock-on effect of this from the shipping side, which has affected the immigration part in uh, for yachting for Indians, the because of these of these uh, ships being abandoned and crew being abandoned, uh, the Indian equivalent of Nautilus uh, lobbied, and uh, rules were put into effect that the uh, crew that were joining a, a a ship could only do so if they could only leave the country if they had some necessary documentation in place. Now the problem is that this necessary documentation is standard procedure for a, 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 a you know a standard uh, shipping company but is completely unknown for a yacht so the uh, the the person joining a yacht especially if he's joining for the first time from india finds it difficult to get that documentation from the ship itself unless it's a standard you know uh, management company like let's say uh, you know i work with wilson yacht management for some of the etos and stuff like that who, who joined from India and helped them out. But it's difficult. So these guys get stuck in uh, in actually in the first step of leaving the country at all. They can't even leave. Forget about if they had a visa or not. So they have to end up doing very strange things like having a visa, having a return ticket, joining the boat, then cancelling the return ticket, and not you know, and a lot of expenses which they then end up end up having to bear themselves. Because it's also unknown in the yachting industry. And so there's no actually no process for them to get this, the, these documents for departure? <laughs> there is a process, but uh, if you ask for it, because it's so, uh, let's say, it's not done at all in yachting for the rest, it's just difficult. And for a, the bigger boats might have all those documents. The smaller boats, like up to 50, 60 meters, don't have the documents at all. These documents include showing that you're commercially 
commercially registered. What happens if it's a private vessel? It's, it doesn't exist, the, the document at all for them. So they can't give it to you anyway, you know. So, so who do you go to? If, if I'm a, a crew member, the boat is no longer getting money from the owner. I'm on a flag of convenience, say Panamanian. I'm in Fort Lauderdale, so um, I'd be within, say, you know, birth of the Fort Lauderdale, so I'm under FBI, I guess. Um, as a crew member, who, who do I go to, to? What's my first step? Do I go to... Escalate. Do I, well, you escalated to you know, maybe the uh, yacht management company, uh, but if the owner's just turned his back, as we've seen with a few boats, uh, who, do you, who do I call? <laughs> there should be on board each vessel a financial security uh, certificate um, that all the seafarers working on board the vessel should be able to access. Um, and for, for a flag of convenience vessel, um, or for, for any flag vessel, um, but particularly sort of Panama um, and, and those kind of flags, um, they, they should be on board uh, available to everyone. And even if they're in a country or a state which hasn't ratified the MLC, like the United States, um, that's, that's no problem. They, they should still be able to access that financial security um, under a clause that's called the, the No Less Favourable Treatment Clause. Uh, so a, a vessel that's, that's uh, flying a flag of an MLC um, ratifying nation should still receive the same benefits when they're in a, a, a country that doesn't fly, the, sorry, in a, a country that has not ratified the MLC. Well, quite often, um, uh, the, you know, if you're under a flag of convenience, quite often the, the company that the boat is registered to is, is set up really just for that purpose. So quite often there's, the, you know, there's nothing there um, if you go chasing that company, uh, is this? Cause it, it just seems to me that um, the crew are you know, up the up the uh, canal without a paddle, as it were. You know, if they're uh, they, they chase. Well, after I think. <coughs> Excuse me. Yeah. Um, I think you know we've touched upon the options that that crew members have. The first and the most obvious one, um, after you've spoken to the captain about the situation, is to, uh, I would say, is to address it and approach the management company. Um, I think, and this is a bit of a plug for Danny and Nautilus here, if you're a crew member, you'd be absolutely crazy to not be a signed up member. Um, for the cost of it per year is you know, minimal in comparison to the, the benefits it offers. Um, and time and time again, it saves people money. And time and time again, I hear stories of people who aren't members of Nautilus um, then having costs when they chase payments, salaries, contract disputes, that sort of thing. So, you know, the first thing for any crew member um, I would encourage is to join Nautilus. Um, but yeah, and, and that would be one of my first ports of call, pardon the pun, um, once things started going wrong. Is it something that's... Sorry, sorry. go ahead, Danny. Thanks, Tim. And that's a a really important point in terms of a a first port of call is that a a seafarer, um, when they're facing an issue, should should contact us uh, straight away and not leaving it to to a few weeks or months down the line. Um, Because although we'll still uh, do our very best to help them, if we find out about the situation very early on, then it can make it a lot easier for us to resolve and a lot quicker uh, for the situation to to be to be over for that seafarer um, and for for the owner or the management company as well. 
Danny, uh, Danny, crew will generally wait at least, like from what I've seen, at least uh, two to three months before they do anything. You know, the first month goes by, and then 30 days later, they still haven't received. And it's probably another 30 days that's gone before they actually do the first step of having a crew meeting, talking to the captain. The captain then tries to talk to the management, and there you go. You got like you're down 60 days really on that. The other thing is for the smaller boats, I'm dealing a lot with 40 to 50 meter boats now, different from what I was doing before. And I'm hearing a lot of these stories in these boats. Now, there they don't even have access to a financial document at all. It, it doesn't exist on board. So I think there's also a matter of like some, some kind of like knowledge awareness has to be there for, for, for green crew and crew who are uh, on, on the smaller boats. The bigger boats, it's very well, you know, it's all like well written out and you have the meetings, you know what to do, etc. The smaller boats, it seems to me like no one really uh, knows what to do. The problem is a lot of these boats are private, so therefore they can write their own contracts um, and they don't have a code of behavior to follow, so to speak. Um, so that's one of the big issues with not necessarily 40 meters, I guess everything from 24 meters up. Um, of course, once the yacht's commercial, then it has to be MLC compliant. Uh, their contracts have to cover things like repatriation, if the yacht's abandoned and, and all those aspects of things. Um, and obviously you're a lot more protected. Um, yeah, it's, it's a very tricky situation. There's no obvious or easy answer to address it because, you know, private yachts are, will, will remain private for various reasons that benefit them. The contract is an important uh, point to mention, and thanks, Tim, for that, because it is really essential for, for a seafarer to, when they're joining a ship to have a contract. And sometimes we find that uh, somebody will come to us facing an issue and they've, they've not received a contract for, for whatever reason. Um, and that's one really big, important piece of advice, advice we give to people is to ensure they have a contract, ensure they've read it, um, and they can even send it to Nautilus in advance of signing it for advice um, so we can look out for, for any kind of pitfalls that, that might come, um, come their way if there is an issue. Um, and actually, uh, we're at the Monaco Yacht Show um, and we'll be releasing um, that uh, advice and, and guidance document uh, to our members and, and to the industry uh, at the Monaco Yacht Show. Um, for for people to have that ready, um, both for the for the Caribbean season, but also to keep with them for the for the next uh, sort of Mediterranean season as well. To expand on Danny's point a little bit as well about the contracts, um, something that uh, a lot of seafarers seem to be unaware of, they're supposed to be sent the contract prior to joining the yacht, um, so they can review it, they can get advice on it if they wish. And things like that. Um, I think a lot of crew turn up and get their contract once they're on the boat. Sometimes two, three, four, five, two weeks even after they've joined. Um, and in reality, that is not what is supposed to happen. Um, under the MLC compliancy, you're supposed to get access to it previously. Um, and good yachts will be on top of that sort of thing. Um, and on top of their admin and their logistics, and they will provide you with with your contract when you accept the role. Um, so I would certainly have question marks over a yacht which doesn't provide a contract fairly smartish upon um, upon you accepting a job. And the point about private yachts as well is that 
although um, some of them may not have to comply with MLC regulations and, and, and procedures, uh, there are lots of national laws um, that those vessels have to follow, um, many of which incorporate what the MLC um, sort of dictated to, to, to flag states um, around the world. Um, and then again, that's where um, sort of the, the Nautilus expertise comes in really handy for a seafarer when they face an issue um, is that, that we can sort of access uh, lawyers uh, around the world if, if necessary on behalf of the seafarers so we've got a, an expert in place uh, to look into those national rules uh, where an, an, an MLC situation doesn't apply. So, uh, you know, I mean, when it, like, as both of you are saying, almost all this applies to the bigger boats. There, it seems that everything is well documented, mostly well registered. Everyone's following MLC. You know that, you know, your insurance cover gives you three months of uh, a salary if you don't, um, you know, if you're not paid. So you, you have that all that going for you there. The problem is the smaller boats. It seems that one is they don't have the there's just a lack of awareness of what you should be doing. There's a lack of awareness of, of, of being of the boat's management, whether it is the captains or the, or, or the management or the owner's uh, management team who, is, who are not really yacht-related. They themselves are not taking care of this. That professionalism and awareness, I think, needs to come in for the smaller boats, who are, which are also expensive pieces of, of, uh, of uh, uh, you know, machinery, and the crew are are, uh, you know, professional crew or should be professional crew. With the smaller boats, are they typically under management or are they more often than not being managed by the, the family or a, a owner's rep? It varies hugely. Um, I would say, as a rule of thumb, generally the boats are managed, have got a decent budget to spend because um, obviously management fees can, can rack up to quite a lot over the course of a year um, and generally they're not really going to have issues. The yachts which don't have management fees are often <coughs> not having management fees because or not signing up to a management company because they want to save money um, and there's budgetary issues in other areas on the yacht. Um, so yeah, if a yacht's being run on a shoestring then then corners are cut in a nutshell I would say. Hmm. I've seen that. Uh, I've seen it a bit too often I'm afraid. Average. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, still here. Yeah. Sorry, <laughs> I, I was just uh, going to ask, is there any more on the point that you'd, you'd like to go into? Uh, not really. It was a nice, nice, nice talk. Always nice meeting up with Danny. Uh, I catch up with him a few times uh, around the course of the year. So it's always nice discussing and seeing where things are. It's, uh, I, I, I'm, I'm, I've been thinking about these things, which is why I brought it up with you, Dave. Hmm. And uh, someone needs to, you know, uh, uh, kind of, put a bit more awareness into into the crew that are joining. Uh, the big thing that no one talked about, none of the three of us raised just now, was what happens with Brexit. Because then uh, the, the Brits, will they also have to do the same thing like the South Africans? What happens, I mean, do they stay <coughs> so many in Parma, you know, over here? What happens to their, like, work permits and stuff? No one talked about that, you know? What do you think will happen there? I, I did actually have that question in my mind earlier, but uh, it fell out of it. Do, do you know, Tim, what's going to happen with... Um, no one does. That's the problem. No one has a clue, um, including the British government, sadly. <laughs> um, so, yeah, uh, you know, 
that is very much again to use an expression I, I said earlier roll a dice um, you would hope that some of the people who have been based in Parma or the south of France for years decades etc would be fine but the reality is I think you know there's people in the UK who have been residents for decades who are being kicked out so um, yeah it's there's there's some serious question marks there but it's it's just it's just guesswork i think and at it's, this all, moment in time. it's not just about the, the the visas and the crew but um i'm not sure how it is in 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 seafaring terms but say with uh, airlines they have to renegotiate because the european bloc negotiated all the landing and the flying rights and the you know, how aeronautics works and after brexit the aeronautics in 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 the UK has to renegotiate all these different contracts individually. It's it's a huge process. Um, I'd imagine from from a, a maritime perspective, there's an awful lot of agreements and, and paperwork that would have to be done, where before they were done as the EU as a block. But now the UK has to create its own agreements. Is there any talk of that or? Is that we seen as seen, an issue? Um, we have seen published uh, some news uh, about uh, ferry companies, for example, having to move away uh, from the British flag yeah, um, I've seen and, that. and register with, with European Union flags uh, to be able to continue trading. Um, but it, it's still unclear to to all of us um, whether the the European Maritime Safety Agency and the European Commission um, will. To enable a system of, of mutual certificate recognition um, between sort of the UK certificate of competency um, and, and European equivalents. Um, and, and the European Commission has estimated there's about 4,000 uh, seafarers in a position of, of facing uncertainty um, over whether they should be taking, what steps they should be taking to revalidate certificates and, and maintain their ability to work on, on other flagged vessels or or sorry, on, on EU flagged vessels as well. Mm-hmm. And, and Tim, are you seeing any concern from the employment side of things of people holding off until these? Uh, I, I think people are very much just hoping for the best. Um, uh, 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 interesting question. I'm just now racking my brains. Have any of my British candidates I've been talking to over the last few weeks expressed concerns? No is the answer. No one has said a word to me about, oh, I wonder what's going to happen, or I live in Palmer, etc. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think the general consensus is a mixture of head in the sand um, with, yeah, with with blind optimism that it'll all sort itself out. It's probably quite weary um, as well. Yeah, uh, I haven't spoken to anyone who has taken steps um, to lessen the potential impact. Mm. And Avnish from uh, the shipyard, you, you're seeing any any Brexit quivers? Yeah, actually, it's strange uh, what Tim was saying. I haven't heard many of the boat people say that. But definitely, uh, you know, I, I have, uh, uh, let's say, uh, staff working in the shipyard who are, uh, there's a couple who are, uh, let's say, UK nationals and moved here 15 years ago. Um, and they, they were talking to me about it, like, you know, a couple of days ago, actually, as to how they, they would... You know, what what would they do kind of thing. So we, we are thinking of putting them onto residencies in Spain, obviously, and their work permits from here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, terrifying. Um, so close to the 31st of October and nobody has a bloody clue. 
it's it's a complete shambles from start to yeah. finish. Um, but well, yeah. one last question on just wanted to go back to the the visa situation. It was just something you, you I think you said, Tim, uh, made me think. As as somebody uh, going, say, crew member going for a B one B two, would I be better served going through an agency? Is there a better hit rate through agencies versus going as an individual or do you have any I, I, I don't know, I don't even know if there are agencies which exist to facilitate the B one B two process. I, I don't I don't think there are, but I could be wrong. Um, something someone said to me recently, which was an interesting point, was you would be better off applying for your B one B two directly and not supplying any boat papers of any description and distancing yourself from the from the yacht industry. Um, yeah, I don't know whether that would work or not. Um, but yeah. Uh, I don't think there's any agencies that, that do that, Dave. And the thing that we would say here at Nautilus is that, that seafarers shouldn't be paying for these kind of documents uh, at all. And no. it should should be vessels paying for these documents and, and using an agency and having to pay an agency in order to access them. Um, it sort of muddies the waters a little bit for in, in that area. Um, and and it, it, as we say, it should be the, the vessel that is arranging this kind of thing for the seafarer and providing the, the advice and guidance for them to be able to uh, to get the, the visa successfully. Cool. But, uh, you know, some, like let's say in the Philippines, you have to go through a POE, right? The, uh, an agency which is, uh, uh, which is approved by the Philippines, gov- uh, Philippines government. And Croatia handles for most of uh, your crew, at least. Uh, you know, they're, they're well cited there. But you have to go through uh, for, for just for the Philippine crew to leave, to either join a ship or to join a yacht. You have to go through them. Yeah, you the, have to go through the Philippines is a slightly different setup, though, isn't it? Because they've, as a country, they've made that, this into an industry in providing crews for uh, the cruise liners and, and now the, the yachting industry. Um, it's, a, it's a particular setup they have there, which I don't think I've seen anywhere else. It may well be, but... Um, it's a different way of doing things there, isn't it? Yeah, I think India is also now uh, going to a very similar way same from model. what I can see. And uh, Sri Lanka is the same as far as I know. So quite a few of the countries there are uh, not exactly the same model, but kind of close to it. You know. Yeah, we, we posted up um, a talk, not a TED talk. It was actually comedy channel talk, but they were talking about... Uh, the Philippines and and the, the the way the agencies work, but one thing I noticed um, on that agency is totally aside from everything, but uh, the, they have predetermined prices for if you lose a limb, and so they valued different parts of your body, um, <laughs> and that that's the maximum. I saw that one. Yeah, <laughs> yeah you saw that. A little bit scary, but well worth watching. I think we've come to the end of the road on, on visas and what to do if you can't get paid. Uh, anything else you guys wanted to contribute before we thank each other and say goodbye? No. I think we've covered a lot of things. I think so. Um, the main one, sign up to Nautilus if you're a crew member. It's a no-brainer. Yeah, I think if there and is... you're listening. There is a, a big takeaway. It's it's um, that should be the first thing you do as you become a professional sea person. Um, Absolutely, sign up to Nautilus because God forbid you you may well need them someday. Yeah, and and actually learn what your rights are as well. So many crew have got no idea 
about what their, their their rights are in terms of the workplace and things like that. We we spoke. Not with... that I'm suggesting <clears throat> that they become militant and bang the drum about X, Y, and Z, but having some idea of what their rights are will probably benefit them in we, terms of repatriation and things like that. We, we spoke with uh, Captain Ian Flockhart oh, several weeks ago, and that's one thing he brought up. There's, um, I'm afraid I don't know the name of it. It's a maritime kind of code of contract. It's like a basic merchant sea person's contract. And his it's advice... It's just called C. It's called C. And his, his advice yeah. was to, you know, when you get a contract with a boat, actually staple it onto it and hand it back and say, you know, the captain should be okay with this appended onto my uh, contract. Well, I think... Uh, yeah, I mean... Um I think that's a slightly brave move if you've just joined a yacht um, <laughs> as a green member of crew. Was militant um, the word you used? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm not sure how long you'll stay. Um, I think you'd certainly have an asterisk placed next to your name as a troublemaker or potential troublemaker. Yeah. But yeah, in theory, you should be able to do that. But um, you know, reality doesn't match up with theory, unfortunately. No. But at least get a copy of it and know your rights. Yeah, absolutely. The important thing is for... for people to send their contracts into Nautilus um, when they receive them, their seafarers' employment agreements, whichever kind of documentation they receive, um, and, and we will quite happily check through it for them um, as long as they're a Nautilus member, of course, um, and, and, and provide any advice and guidance and, and, and tips on what they might need to prepare their contract to be um, and just as, as sort of a point from us is that our, our yearly membership rates for a, a captain and an officer uh, are 330 euros per year um, and for crew and uh, deckhands uh, interior crew for example uh, 225 euros per year um, and most most people will see very quickly if they needed expert guidance or, or advice and um, one hour with a, a solicitor or a lawyer and um, would would quite quickly eclipse those kind of fees as well. I think I might join. <laughs> You'd be very do, you do, do, do you do conveyancing for house property and stuff like that? <laughs> uh, there are some membership um, with some deals and discounts that we negotiate uh, on behalf of our, our 22,000 members. Um, we call that Nautilus Plus. <laughs> <laughs> Danny, we'll talk all fair later. <laughs> Um, gentlemen, thank you. Avinash, thank you very much for bringing these two points up. Really appreciate it. Um, uh, thank you, Tim. Um, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Uh, things are busy at the moment, as they are for you as well, Danny, and really appreciate you coming in uh, with Nautilus's perspective. Uh, yeah, I've, I've learned. I've walked away learning stuff, so I, I appreciate <laughs> that, guys. Have a brilliant rest okay, of the afternoon. Okay, lovely. And um, we'll go back to some music and some normal programming. You've been listening to an episode of The Crew Mess with Avnish Dahl, Tim Clark, and uh, Danny, Danny McGovern from, uh, from Nautilus. Thank you for Thanks, listening. Bye. Thanks. This is Super Yacht Radio. <laughs>